And this Go. ball in the air, deep right center Go. field. Two-run home run, Trevor Story. Way back, Myers, he'll watch it go Chuck Nasty. Two-run home run, David Dahl. And Nolan drives this high in the air, deep left field. Take a good look, you won't see it for long. Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Strava Craft Coffee. Remember to use that promo code DNVR20 because when you do, you get 20% off your entire purchase of that CBD-infused, deliciously rich and potentially life-altering Strava Craft Coffee. I am your host, Drew Creaseman. I'm the managing editor of DNVR Rockies. With me, as always, is beat writer Patrick Lyons and joining us for a special edition of this episode is one of our favorite people inside the press box and outside the press box for that matter matter from AP radio, Bruce Morton, somebody we've talked to a lot over the years, not on the podcast. Very excited to finally get a chance to chat with you here and uh, hear some of your stories of covering baseball over the years. Man, Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's tell some stories. Let's do it. So uh, I know Patrick's got a few queued up. One of the things that, you know, rarely happens, you, you meet a person, you say, you know, hi, how you doing? My name is, I work for, I've been covering for a little bit of time. And then we start talking baseball. We, we sit next to each other in the press box or have uh, a lot over the years. And you rarely then turn to that person and go, oh yeah, can you tell me your origin story? Can, can you go back and, and like, how did you get into this? And so I would like to know, before all this, see, before we get to the stories, how come there are stories? What brought you into this wild world of covering sports? Well, I can remember a defining moment because I was like seven years old at the time. And I don't remember too many things about being seven years old, but I remember this. My, um, my maternal grandfather was an alumni of University of California, Berkeley, and he used to go to the football and basketball games that Cal played. And he took me to a game in 1960-61 between Cal and UCLA. And Cal won that game. The significance of that is that UCLA won like the next 53 in a row against Cal. That streak was not broken until the mid-80s. But I was at the last game before that streak began. Anyway, Cal played its games in this, this old barn called Harmon Gym. And the, uh, the broadcast position for the broadcasters was in this little, this little uh, makeshift booth at the top of the arena. And the guy doing Cal basketball at the time was longtime San Francisco Giants. And before that, New York Giants play-by-play man, Russ Hodges. And we were seated right beneath that wooden booth. And so after the game, when Russ Hodges is wrapping up the game, um, my dad lifted me up on his shoulders. So now here I was at eye level with Russ Hodges, who's wrapping up the game. And he sees this little kid looking at him. 
Well, that was that was me, and I was watching him wrapping up the game, and I was fascinated with what he was doing, and the combination of that and my maternal grandfather giving me uh, a, a Tudor, T-U-D-O-R, electric baseball game um, from which I did baseball play-by-play -play to myself, uh, that's what got it all started. Wow. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, that's a definite pivotal moment of, of – you know, the start of a one's fandom, but also like that business side is not just seeing the games and say, I want to have something to do with it. You kind of had more of that insight of, of, of being on the inside, being in the clubhouse, calling the games, watching it, not just being a bystander. You, I know you kind of, you, you set your journey out from the Bay area and in, in like your late teens, I think, right. That was kind of when you really uh, took your first step, I think, into, you know, sports media for, for lack of a better term. Right. Yes, I um, um, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was a junior college in the Bay Area that had a broadcasting department, College of San Mateo in San Mateo, California. And I went there and did stuff on the college station KCSM, whose star broadcasters, undisputed star at KCSM, was a guy named John Miller. The same John Miller that for years did Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN and still does San Francisco Giants baseball on both radio and television. I actually broadcast some College of San Mateo games along with John Miller. Um, we, we broadcast the games from this van, this blue van, which, which was uh, color-coordinated because the school's colors were blue and white. And uh, this van parked in this kind of uh, this area overlooking the baseball field, and uh, we broadcast the games from the van. But uh, clearly, I did not belong in the same van as John Miller. Uh, he, he was, everybody in the broadcasting department knew he was going places, which he did. But uh, we had a game once, and uh, the, uh, I, I, I did a few innings, and there was an instance in which uh, a guy for the opposing team with the bases loaded hit a ball to the gap. And, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, this voice in my head is saying, let's see, there's a ball and it's going to the gap. There are two outfielders chasing the ball. There are three guys running around the bases and the fans for the opposing team, they're all cheering. Um, I guess I should talk about one of them. Anyway, I ended up saying nothing while all these runners came in to score and stuff like that. And then, then John, you know, both of us with hot mics, uh, leaned over to me, whispered in my ear, he said, Bruce, you've got to say something. Otherwise, the listeners aren't going to know what the devil's going on. <laughs> and that seemed to be good advice. And uh, the best I could do is saying, well, uh, Smith just hit a three-run double and blankety-blank leads CSM 10 to 2. Uh, but uh, uh, John's career took off much quicker uh, than mine did. He was broadcasting games for the Oakland A's when they won the World Series in 1974. He was broadcasting games for the A's at age 22. And then his career took off. He, he went to the Red Sox and then the Rangers and the Orioles. And then uh, he ended up back, back home in the Bay Area doing the Giants. So the answer to the trivia question about the best baseball combo announcers, before it was John Miller and Joe Morgan, it was John Miller and Bruce Morton. Yes, but one of those names would be in capital letters and the other ones would be in the, the letters in the optometrist's office that you need to <laughs> you know, put a magnifying glass on. Like, or maybe this has the number two. It has a footnote and you got to turn to the back of the book and go, oh yeah, who, who was the other guy? Oh, Bruce Morton. Bruce yes. 
it's it's all right. I mean, and you you basically admitted it yourself. Maybe you didn't deserve to be in the same booth as John Miller, but I think you deserve to be in the same van as John Miller. I'll say at that. least in the same van. Yeah. Well, well, for, for driving home from the game, I suppose. But uh, but when, when the game was on, I I didn't belong in the same van as John Miller. Um, you I probably got to call call the three run double, but uh, you've you've done you've done well for yourself. So obviously the the moment in the van didn't stop you from continuing to pursue your uh, dream of, of covering sports. Uh, what happens next? Well, I eventually got a job with a, a little tiny radio station in North Carolina. And uh, I was only there very briefly. Uh, I got fired from that job because in those days, in, in the 70s and in, in small market radio, there was no such thing as somebody who did just sports. You did news and then you did sports on the side. Or you did sales and you did sports on the side. Or in my case, you were a terrible DJ and you did sports on the side. So, uh, so I broadcast play-by-play for the Reedsville Rams in Reedsville, North Carolina, the uh, defending state 3A champ, Reedsville Rams. And uh, in fact, Reedsville High sent a guy to uh, UNC Charlotte named Melvin Watkins, who briefly played in the NBA. But, uh, but anyway, um, I was called into the manager's office one morning and, um, uh, and he said, uh, Bruce, uh, we think your announcing is hurting the station you're fired. And my personal advice, I think you should investigate another career. So, <laughs> wow. Wow. So, I, guess, I guess he gave it that's to you. harsh. Yes. I, I was 20 years old, 3000 miles from home. And that day happened to be my dad's birthday. So I called him collect when people still made collect calls. I called him collect to tell him I'd been fired. Uh, but I, I went from there to a radio station in Vermont, Newport, Vermont, right below the Canadian border. And I broadcast uh, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Uh, probably the hockey was the most interesting because the high school in town, North Country Union High School, did not have a rink. There was no rink in Newport, and yet they had a hockey team. So they played their home games in the little town of Rock Island, Quebec. So for our home games, we had to go through customs. <laughs> so your home game wasn't even in your home country. No, it wasn't. That wasn't. And, and, so the, and so not unlike the wooden booth at Cal, they had, they had like this little uh, scaffolding and they had these planks of wood. And on, and, and, uh, on top of the, the scaffolding is where my broadcast position was. And this worked just fine until uh, North Country played – uh, this rival from uh, Barry, Vermont, Barry, Montpelier, right next to each other, Montpelier, the capital of Vermont. They played this school, Spalding High School, and Spalding High School hockey was such a big deal down there that two stations broadcast their games. Well, we had ordered a phone line for the whole season. And uh, anyway, these two stations, WSKI and WSNO uh, rivals, uh, they each ordered a phone line uh from for the same broadcast booth for the same game that I would be doing. So imagine my surprise when I came into the arena and uh, the scaffolding area had not one, but two, two guys all set to broadcast the game. And they had, and uh, one of them was given like a new phone line and the other one was given my phone line. 
So that, so then I tried calling the phone company to get this straightened out, and everybody spoke French. So this was going to be a problem. And um, and one of them, WSNO, was kind enough to uh, let us jury rig uh, a, a broadcast that went to our station, and then we patched it through to them. And then the, their guy said, uh, yes, but I'm doing two of the three periods. So uh, with our phone line, he did the first and third period, and I did the second period. But uh, that's how it goes in small market radio. Wow. That, that's one of the most crazy-ass things I've ever you'd, heard. You'd, you try to sort out a telephone situation half an hour before face-off with somebody who speaks French. I Probably vous français. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would not do well. Uh, so, you know, it is, we're getting around, it, it is World Series time out there, and we got to ask you about some World Series stories, so we'll we'll fast forward toward that. That also means I get to crack open my Breck brew if we're going to talk about the World Series. Always good to have a Breck brew with your World Series conversation or your World Series watching. You know, you can get it down at the DNVR bar at a King Supers liquor store anywhere. But uh, you prefer to get it down at the farmhouse. You know you do out there in uh, Littleton. You get it. You call 303-803-1380 from noon to 8 p.m. You use code DNVR and you save five bucks off the food and the beer. The perfect pairing for any World Series chat. So uh, you, you can fill in the blanks there for us, Bruce, about how you end up going from the situation that you've just described <laughs> I don't think Drew Goodman has to go through that, you know, 10 minutes before the first pitch of a Rockies game. So I, no. I've covered a, a handful of, of postseason games to this point in my career, just one at Coors Field, right? And and seeing just the different level of pageantry around Coors Field than there is throughout the regular season was something to behold. So the contrast between uh, the hockey situation you've just described to us and to not long thereafter be covering World Series games. <laughs> that's, that's a big jump. Quite something. Yes. <laughs> well, the first uh, World Series game I was at, I was at as a fan and I was, I was there as a fifth grader. It was game six of the 1962 World Series between the Giants and Yankees. And this was a fifth graders bonanza. I don't know how much you guys know about the 1962 World Series. Amazing man. Game, game six of the World Series was postponed by rain like four days. Mm. And so for each day, my dad, you know, scribbled this note to the teacher to uh, excuse me so that I could go to the baseball game. So I didn't just get out of one day of school. I got out of three because one of the postponed days was on a weekend. But anyway, uh, that game, the, the Giants won behind uh, Billy Pierce beating Whitey Ford. And uh, that forced the seventh game, which the Yankees won. The first game I actually covered was game one of the 1975 World Series, Reds and Red Sox, a game won by the Red Sox. And... Maybe the most interesting part of that game was Louis Tiant, who was pitching for the Red Sox, and uh, they didn't have DHs in the World Series. So, um, so Tiant had to bat, and I don't think he, I don't think he reached base by a, a hit, but he did reach base, and he was on first base. And somebody, somebody for the Red Sox hit a single, and now he had to run. He had to run the bases, and so he, um, he ran to, he ran to second base. 
and he and he just stood on the on the base for dear life, uh, worried that if he ventured one inch from the base, he could be tagged out. So uh, so watching Louis Tiant run from first to second in that game one of 1975 was the one thing I'll remember. Although it was it was a great day and a, a great experience. Then uh, well, the, that, the, for what you were saying about Tion, that probably would have been one of his, if not his first at bat as a professional there, there was, you know, for anyone that's, you know, a little bit younger and doesn't remember there well, wasn't Louis always Tion pitched back play. in the sixties. Louis Tion pitched in the pre um, DH days. So oh, as, as yeah. a pitcher, as a pitcher for the Indians, he pitched a number of years for the Cleveland Indians. He, he would have batted then, but you would have think he would, you, you would have thought he would have gotten some practice at, at running from first to second base. <laughs> But he ran to second base and then he just he he just stopped. He suddenly stopped on second base when the, the ball was nowhere near him. But he just wanted to be safe. And uh, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't tagged out and he wasn't. Uh, thankfully for Tiot, he ended that inning at, at second base. And um, we were deprived of the entertainment value that would have been attached to him going to third base or home. But uh, the, the next World Series game, uh, that I want to mention is game six of the 1986 World Series. And I was at, uh, be, by now I, I was working for ABC Radio. I had started working for ABC Radio as a producer and a reporter in late 1984. And then in 86, um, in 86, I covered the Mets, who were just a fantastic team from start to finish. They won the NL East by like 20 games or something. And, um, and so with my schedule, I, I was at games one and six and game six, uh, just about anybody who follows baseball, uh, knows how that game ended. And, um, the, the interesting thing about that game, uh, the logistics at Shea stadium are such that the, the press box the press box is in this little sliver sort of mezzanine level at, at, um, uh, at Shea stadium. And to get, to get to, um, the, the locker room area is something that just can't be done quickly. And so a lot of media knowing that, um, started making their way down to, uh, a, a part of the, the, the lowest level of Shea Stadium that was known affectionately as quote the old Jets locker room. So there was a there was a clubhouse for the Mets, there was a clubhouse for the visitors, and between the two of them, right behind, behind home plate, was a seldom used locker room. Uh, it was used for news conferences sometimes. Uh, it was the old Jets locker room, and that was that was the interview room in 1986. So I was one of a bunch of media that was already down in the interview room in the top of the ninth. So, um, and you're uh, expecting, you're expecting the Red Sox to have won their first world series since 1918 at that point. Oh yes. And then, and, the, and there was a fellow standing next to me who was one of our Boston correspondents. He went on to be the PA announcer at Fenway park for years, a fellow named Carl Bean and Carl had, um, he spells his name like Billy Bean, but they are not related. Um, but uh, Carl was standing next to me. He was a you know lifelong New Englander, lifelong Red Sox fan. And even though he's supposed to be detached as a reporter, uh, uh, Hendu hits a home run in the top of the ninth, giving the Red Sox an insurance run, making it five to three. And 
and Carl is standing next to me and there's a tear rolling down his, his face as he thinks he, he is going to, he's going to be here for the Red Sox winning this world series. So now it's five to three bottom of the ninth, two out, nobody on. And all of the writers there, especially they're on deadline. They want this game over with. They don't care who wins. They just know that there's one out to go. And uh, Gary Carter or somebody hit a single. I can't remember who started the rally. I think it was Carter. But the point is that the writers were grumbling with each, each <laughs> ensuing Met who reached base. They just wanted the game over with. And so then when um, um, I think it was Calvin Schiraldi uh, uncorked a wild pitch. It was Schiraldi or Stanley. Now I, suddenly I can't remember which. Um, one of them uncorked a wild pitch that tied the game. And now all the writers were PO'd. Because now, because now it looked like, first of all, the game wasn't going to be over. And now it looked like it was going to be extra innings. It was going to play havoc with their deadlines. There was nothing good about this. And then after that, uh, Mookie Wilson's bouncer that went through Buckner's legs. And, um, you know, I would like to say that I was in the ballpark where it happened. And I was. But you know what? I was watching it on television just like the person in Dubuque. Because all the <laughs> all the... All, tons of media in the interview room because they wanted to be poised either for interviews in the interview room or to go into the various clubhouses. Anyway, uh, of course, uh, we know now that the Mets came back with three runs after two out, nobody on in the, uh, in the bottom of the night to win the game. And my postscript to that is that I was one of a very small scrum that waited out Bill Buckner. It was between an hour and an hour and a half after the game that he came out to his locker and there was about five or six of us. And he was, um, he was as gracious as one could be um, under those circumstances. This wasn't just uh, a garden variety error. He had, error. He had the, the weight of a franchise and a city and a region on his shoulders with that ball that went through his legs. And under those circumstances, he was as um, gracious as he could be. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that was a, a critical spot, obviously. And, and I think, you know, it makes it all the more painful is because Boston had been taking him out of the game late, um, putting in, uh, what was his name, Dave? They had a guy named Stapleton, a light-hitting yeah, first baseman. Yeah. I don't think he hit the Mendoza line, but a lot of times um, he went in for defensive purposes and in 1986. Nice. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not the manager of the Red Sox, but I, I thought in that situation, this is a situation with Stapleton written all over it. But um, Stapleton did not play the bottom of the ninth. Buckner did, and that uh, very routine ground ball uh, went through his legs. The the one thing that like people, if you're not in sports media, that's like it's it's bittersweet is that you get to be there in quotes for these amazing games and performances. But many times you don't get to, like you said, you don't get to witness it with your own naked eyes. You're, you're, you're working there. You experience it completely differently. So it's this weird catch twenty two that, you know, I guess is 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 more of a gift than it is a curse in these kind of moments. Yes, the only thing I can tell you that I saw that a lot of fans didn't see, and that was the Met players after the game. If uh, if you've ever been to Shea Stadium, there is this. There's, there's this uh, kind of lower level, and then um, from each clubhouse, there is this 
you know, little particle board type uh, runway that goes between the lowest level of Shea Stadium and leads out into the dugout, whether you're the home or visiting team. Anyway, after the Mets won that game, um, I remember this this ancient uh, cereal commercial, which is probably before uh, your time, both of you. But there used to be this uh, uh, cereal called Crispy Critters, and there was a and there was a TV commercial with all these critters running along. I don't know if they were running to or from the cereal, but all these critters that are, were running along. And I thought about that after the game because all the Mets in a big stampede ran through that very flimsy uh, runway back to the back to the dugout. Usually, whether it, when a team wins or loses, they you know they walk back to the clubhouse. But the entire team, this big stampede of guys, was going from the. Um, uh, the field back into the clubhouse and they were all yelling and jumping up and down and, and stuff like that after this uh, historic world series win. It, it was probably about five, six, maybe even a full seven day week until any of those Mets players got, got any rest. Cause that 86 team was, they were, they were a wild bunch. I'm sure they didn't sleep after game six and they certainly didn't after game seven. Oh, not only that, um, when they clinched, they they clinched on like September eighth or something like that. It was it was ridiculous how early they clinched. Uh, the Phillies were in second place, and they were like ten games over five hundred or something. But uh, uh, anyway, the 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 Mets clinched on a Tuesday night against the Cubs, and um, this sort of thing doesn't happen in baseball today. But but uh, fans at Chase Stadium stormed the field and started tearing up the field. They they wanted souvenir sod. And so they would, you know, pick up like a, a big splotch of grass from the field. And, um, and so the, the, there had to be a game there the next day, the Cubs were playing the Mets on a Wednesday afternoon and the grounds crew did the best it could. But uh, you could see all these, all these holes in the field where, where grass had been removed. Anyway, after the game, after that game, when the Mets clinched the division, the Mets were celebrating in the clubhouse and Kevin Mitchell, who was like sort of a fourth outfielder on the team, a very good hitting fourth outfielder. Shortstop at the time, too. He was also um, th th This time. was a guy who could carry a club on his back with it with his hitting, but he didn't start every day. Anyway, the the next day, um, he was passed out on the trainer's table. And and he was there, and the game was about to start, and somebody tried shaking him up and tried waking him and say, Kevin, you're in the lineup today. Let's go. And so he had to get up from the trainer's table and, and stagger out onto the field. But um, uh, how good or bad he did in that game, uh, nobody probably remembers or cares because uh, the Mets had just clinched the division by like 20 games, and they had a great team, a team that went on to win the whole thing. That, that story about the fans ripping up Shea, I, there's, a, there's a family story uh, on, on my mom's side of the family where – at, at, at one of the games at, at Shea Stadium, my, both my uncles were there, and one of them was on the field, tore up some grass. It, it very, very well may have been that game. And, you know, of course, when they brought it home, it was like exactly 10 paces away from the corner, that corner of the house, and that's where that, you know, Shea grass was. And, I, and in fact, I've been in that press box uh, of Shea. This was around, like, the winter of 1992. Uh, my uncle, again, had, had season tickets to, to the uh, Mets, and 
we're getting a view of the press box and we get to see the field. There's snow on the ground. Unfortunately, we weren't able to go out on the field, but you know, we can still see, you know, a little bit of, of Queens there in the background. You can see the big, uh, you know, scoreboard that they had. And my uncle says right before we leave, he said, ask the guy about the apple. So I raised my hand and said, yes, young man. He's like, um, it, what, is this where the apple goes up? And he said, come here. And so I walked down, you know, the, the, the two little small flights of steps. And he said, push this button. And so I pushed this button. And in the middle of the darkness, uh, and a cold December night, that's right, the apple came out of the top hat that says home run. And then it descended back down into the top hat. And it was fantastic. A great, great moment. Yeah. Very nice. And this has, the following has nothing to do that's with okay. – with World Series, but um, uh, there there was a much more pronounced demolition uh, related to a baseball game that took place in Philadelphia in 1970. Uh, 1970 was the last year that the Phillies played at Connie Mack Stadium. And the, the 70 Phillies were a crummy team and Connie Mack Stadium was in a crummy neighborhood of North Philly. And so between the two, I mean, the Phillies attendance was just terrible. They drew like 500,000 or something like that. A crowd of 6,000 was considered a big crowd. <laughs> but uh, the, the night of the, the Phillies' final home game at Connie Mack Stadium, it was a meaningless game against the Expos, and they sold it out. Capacity at this very old ballpark was like 31,000. And all these people, not everybody, but almost everybody showed up with ratchets and wrenches and stuff like that. And, and they, they, they physically removed the seat that they had bought for that game. And you could, you could hear the sounds of hammers and saws and ratchets and wrenches throughout the game. Probably the only baseball game in which that was the sound effect. But a lot of people didn't come for the game. They came for their seat. And uh, if they removed their seat by the third inning, they were out of there by the third inning. <laughs> wow that <laughs> yeah that that is a unique baseball environment so anyone you know we've seen some unique baseball environments this year <laughs> some, some quiet crowds and the cardboard cutouts and stuff but i don't know that anything beats a, a crowd that's just there to take part of the stadium home it's <laughs> a, a new one um so uh, let let us go ahead, and, and we don't even have to stay on the World Series. It's just an excuse. It's, it's just an excuse to chat and, and share stories and all of that. But since we are at uh, this little bit of a break, I should remind everyone that if you want to be the next Bruce Morton, you want to get yourself situated with the ability to be traveling around the country doing what you love, well, then you got to make sure that your education is all taken care of and you can make sure that it is at MSU Denver edu slash online whether you're starting out a new degree finishing up an old one or just picking up some new skills something you want to learn they've got incredibly responsive teachers uh, courses that make sense that are built to fit inside of your schedule and they've been doing this forever it's the point of their existence they're not just now figuring out online learning they know how to do it they're the experts in the field so that's where you want to go to msu denver.edu slash online uh, so where were we at we were in 86 uh, <laughs> so let's jump so the next ones are in the 90s right you were telling me before do we do we miss any out uh 1996 
Um, and for that World Series, I would have been at all the games at Yankee Stadium. And I don't know how much either of you remember about the 1996 World Series, Braves-Yankees. Mm -hmm. But the Braves came into Yankee Stadium and they won a close game and then they won just a blowout, like 16 to three in one of the two games. I can't remember which is which. It was sort of a coronation for Andrew Jones, if you remember Andrew Jones. Right. And what the second youngest uh, player to ever hit a home run in, in World Series history next to Mickey Mantle. He, he was 20, right? Wow. That's a, that sounds right. But, yeah. that, but, but uh, although he had shown much promise during the 1996 season, he really burst onto the national scene by excelling in the World Series. And so uh, Yankee fans were quite crestfallen after that second game. Not only were they behind two games to none, but they lost those two games at home. And so now they had to, uh, they had to win at least two games in Atlanta. Um, as it turned out, they won three games in Atlanta, bringing the series back to New York. And then uh, game six, uh, the, uh, the Yankees prevailed, won the World Series four games to two. Um, the following has nothing to do with hits, runs, or errors, but an unforgettable scene was the uh, the immense police presence at Yankee Stadium yeah. for the game with, with with mounted cops and there were cops on on horseback who um uh you know some of these cops on horseback they were on the field during the game for like the last out they they didn't want people uh running onto the field and tearing up the field uh so so anyway um which as we've discussed is a thing that can happen <laughs> Yes, although I, I want to digress just for a second. Um, in in the eighties, uh, before I came to New York, I was in Oregon broadcasting minor league baseball, and um, there was a team in the league whose games um, I broadcast games in the Northwest League for the Eugene Emeralds, a farm team of the Cincinnati Reds. Well, there was a farm team of the A's in Medford, Oregon, the Medford A's, and uh, one year they won the Northwest league championship and the PA announcer urged fans to go on the field and celebrate. And nobody did. Oh, oh so that's, no. that's the opposite of Chase stadium, but getting back to Yankee stadium, uh, <laughs> there was a, a foul pop-up and third baseman, um, Charlie Mays Hayes, uh, made the catch for the final out. <laughs> and one of the most memorable scenes after that, again, this has nothing to do with hit hits, runs or errors, but, uh, Wade Boggs, uh, who was on that Yankee team, ended up being uh, hoisted onto uh, an, an NYPD horse and, uh, and was being, uh, being led around the diamond by, uh, by a mounted uh, police officer. So, um, so anyway, that's how the 96 series ended. The 97 uh, Yankees did not make it to the NLCS. They were eliminated in the playoffs by the Indians. Uh, but the Yankees came back in 1998 and I was at every game of that world series in New York and San Diego, a series swept by the Yankees. And it was, if you talk to anybody affiliated with the Padres, they will tell you that the, the whole tone of the series, even though it was a series sweep, the whole tone of the series was set in the very first game when there was a pitch to Tino Martinez from Mark Langston, um, Mark Langston had this, uh, there was a, this 2-2 um, pitch to Tino Martinez. It looked right down the middle. It was called a ball. So there was a 3-2 pitch, and Tino Martinez um, hit the next pitch for a, 
either he hit it for a grand slam or a game tying three run homer. But Tino Martinez had a huge, uh, huge home run in that game. Yankees went on to win that game and they just uh, marched right through the Padres in games two, three, and four. But, uh, but if you talk to um, longtime Padres uh, TV caster, I'm sure you guys have seen him in the press box at one time or another, former major league pitcher Mark Grant. Mark Grant. Grant. Mark, yes, and he is Great on guy. the it, super guy. And he is he's on the Padre telecast. He's been connected with the Padres for quite some time. And uh, and I remember just a few years ago bringing up that game to him, and he was he was still upset like it was yesterday. <laughs> and, and I said, that 2-2 pitch from Langston, he goes, cock. That pitch was cock. How could they call that a ball? And, uh, and, and uh, you know, his face started turning red and veins started popping. But uh, so I'm sure that uh, he's still upset about that. And uh, even though Bruce Bochy went on to win some World Series with the Giants, Bochy was manning, managing those 98 Padres. If you were to ask him about that pitch, I'm sure even today he would have an opinion about it. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and find, as, as someone who's a huge advocate for the electronic strike zone, because that stuff drives me nuts. I'm going to have to find this specific pitch and bring it up. Yes, I, I, I feel terrible because Tino Martinez had a big home run for the Yankees, but th there was a, there was a three run Homer and there was a grand slam hit by the Yankees and they were down five, two, they won the game nine, five and the home runs were hit by Tino Martinez and Chuck Knobloch. One of them had the grand slam. One of them had a three-run homer. They were both monster home runs. But the first of the two was, quote-unquote, made possible by a missed call on a 2-2 pitch that Mark Grant claims was cock. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was the, the, the game decider because it was 5-5 at that point when, when Tino uh, hit the grand slam off of former Boulder Collegian pitcher. Mark Langston. So we got a Colorado connection there after already mentioning Charlie Hayes, another former Colorado Rockies player. So uh, even in these old timey stories, man, there, there, there's Colorado connections all around. There you go. What? So, so that, that's a, probably a good segue to, to, to take us to the, the current uh, decade. So, so to speak, or the current century, uh, what, what brought you to, to Colorado? Like how did you start covering, you know, the Rockies? And I know you, you, you've done the same for the Nuggets and Avs as well. Well, uh, I was working for ABC. ABC's parent company was Disney. And in early 2001, in early 2001, Disney decided that it had to trim its roster of employees. And that, that's, like, that's an, like every imaginable facet of the Disney empire. And mm -hmm. as a result, a number of employees were offered buyouts. It was under the heading of what they lovingly called the voluntary separation program. And uh, you were given two choices. Oh, what kind of Orwellian nonsense is that? <laughs> you were voluntary given two, separation. You were given two choices. Uh, you could either walk off a plank into shark-infested waters, or if you didn't want to do that, they would push you. The options were not good. And, <laughs> Um, anyway, so that, so that resulted in my final day at ABC being at the end of June in 2001. Well, now I had to figure out what to do. Uh, but I had, I had friends in Denver that I had, I had come out to visit in the late nineties. And each time I came out to Denver, I really liked it. I considered it to be more my speed, so to say. And, uh, even though I didn't have a job here, 
10 days after 9-11, I uh, pointed my car west. And uh, a week later, I was in Denver. I was in a very strange situation because um, I had done some lucrative freelance work covering tennis uh, for this outfit based in London called Tennis Radio Network. I had done that in the summer after my buyout. And then I also had my um, severance pay. So it was an unusual situation. I was in Denver with no job and no immediate prospects. And yet by my meager standards, I was flush with cash. So, um, so it, it of course could have been worse, but I ended up going to the Denver Bureau of Metro Networks, uh, thanks in part to a friend. And I went there as a part-time news reporter. Um, uh, I wanted to cover sports, but um, in order for me to get assigned to say a Nuggets game, there were three guys who were ahead of me in line. And so the only way I could get a game is if on the same night, all three of them didn't want to do a game. Well, the good news is um, uh, the one who was doing the most games lost interest. And then the guys who were second and third in line, they lost interest as, as well. Within a year, I had ascended from number four on the depth chart to number one, uh, a position that I maintain to this day. Uh, it's not a lucrative pursuit, but it is a labor of love uh, going to all these games. You, you were the Josh Fuentes before Josh Fuentes. So far back on the depth chart that no one even knew you were there. And all of a sudden, boom, you get the starting gig. Yes, but I didn't have uh, a well-placed cousin um, uh, greasing the skids from uh, from spot number four to spot number one. As, oh. as you said earlier, Charlie Morton is doing a great job there in, in the World Series for the Rays. No relation and, and no help from him. Uh, no relation, but he was. But uh, he was one of my he was one of my favorite uh, room service stories. Probably my. Uh, my favorite guy that I'll mention on, on this show is, um, is McCutcheon of, um, where is he now? I think he's with the Phillies. Phillies. And to go back half a step again, to supplement, you know, working in radio is kind of a, a labor of love, as you said. So you picked up a couple hours at a, at a pretty notable, I guess, hotel where some of the players stay. Right. Uh, I eventually, I, um, I was laid off at Metro Networks. I became a full-time news reporter there and then covered sports on the side. Uh, but uh, Metro, uh, taking a page out of the Disney playbook, decided to close news bureaus all across the country. And, um, and that included Denver. And so right after the 2008 Democratic National Convention, I was laid off again. Um, and in 2013, I resurfaced with the Westin Denver downtown. And, um, um, and so there was a time, there was a time in which the Westin was the, the home to all Rockies visitors, but that changed with the advent of the four seasons, which is, uh, which is a pricier hotel and the Ritz Carlton, uh, which is right next to, uh, the Westin. So they, one by one, they started plucking some of the teams that stayed with us, but, um, but a few of the there were a few true believers and one of them was the pirates. And, uh, and so there are a few players that register uh, under a pseudonym and McCutcheon was one of them. And, um, and so uh, he registered under the pseudonym 
styles is his la when when you order room service food your last name goes on the top of the ticket and uh and he registered under the last name styles s-t-i-l-e-s and so i brought him some food and i and while i was uh giving his food and having him sign his ticket i i gave him this look like i know who you are <laughs> and i and i i said i said well mr styles um what's your first name and without missing a beat, he goes, Stylin. <laughs> Stylin Styles. That's your name. He says, yeah, what did you think my name was? Oh, Stylin Styles. So fast forward to a couple of years later, um, and he comes in, and there was a night in which he hit three home runs. And again, he ordered room service, so I brought him his room service. And, uh, and I said, hey, congratulations on a nice night at the dish. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, uh, three home runs. He said, well, you have me confused with somebody else. Uh, you know, the guy with those home runs, his name is Styles. Or no, his name is McCutcheon. I'm Styles. I'm <laughs> <Some> Styles. <laughs> but also, but I have to tell you about another another thing from the West End, and this took place in in the elevator, not in somebody's uh, room. But whenever a team was playing the Rockies, I would, as often as I could, get to a computer and monitor the box score of the game. And so if the visiting team won, and if there was a player who did well, I would remember to <laughs> mention that when I when I brought room service to their room or if they ordered a beer, I might throw them an extra beer or something like that. Anyway, uh, my very first year at the Westin was 2013. And that year was when uh, Christian Yelich was called up to the Marlins. And so uh, he happened to get his first major league hit at Coors Field. So it, it just so happened that I was getting in the guest elevator at the same time he was. So it's, it's just myself and Yelich in the elevator. And so here's this lowly bellman, you know, like giving him crap. And I, I you know, and I was totally straight faced. And I, I said, you know, if you want to step into a major league batter's box, you know, you might think about mixing in a hit or two. <laughs> and the night in which he got his first hit. And then I said, Hey, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And I, I and I said, Hey, I, congratulations. I got to ask you as somebody who, who never played the game and never will play the game. What does that feel like to get your first hit? And he goes, I'm standing on top of first base and I'm thinking I'm in a major league box score. They're rolling the ball into my dugout. And then as if that isn't enough, 17 comes over and pats me on the butt and says, welcome to the club, son. It doesn't get any better than that. So. Wow. Todd so, Allen, class act. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but it was with that same Marlin team. Um, when, when they first got to town, they got to town about four or five hours late because, and this is a terrible thing for any team. They played a 16 inning game in Milwaukee on getaway day. Not only did they play a 16-inning game in Milwaukee on a, on a getaway day, they lost the game in the bottom of the 16th when a pop-up on the infield plopped to the ground between three infielders. And the, 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 pitcher, the pitcher of record for the, for the Marlins that day was a guy, this is a name you guys may or may not remember. Uh, he was uh, at near the end of his career around 2013. He pitched many years for the Twins named Kevin Slowey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice ironic guy. name for a pitcher, right? Very nice guy. <laughs> very nice guy. So I'm bringing him his room service, and um, and like a lot of players, he has Sports Center on the TV. Well, 
it just so happened that there was another game that day, another day game on this, this Thursday. There was another game that ended up in walk-off fashion when somebody booted a routine ground ball. So slowly signing his ticket. And I said to him, you know, I hear there's a saying in baseball. It doesn't matter where you play in the field. The ball will find you. And this is something Kevin Slowey probably wouldn't say in a clubhouse. But he said to me, yeah, that's my problem. Anytime somebody hits one of my pitches, it finds one of my fielders. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you might have cleaned that up a little bit too for us. Bruce. Thank you. Appreciate no, that. That's what, that's what he said. But, um, you know, I didn't have a microphone there, unfortunately. Uh, but um, uh, but there is uh, uh, a lot of you know, a lot of great stuff with, uh, did with you ever, players. did you ever think of, of keeping those tickets that they would sign or was it more of just like a scribbled X? It's, no, it's just like a receipt. Yeah. And, and, you know, like they'll, they'll just, you know, write a line, you know, where their name is or an X or something like that. I'm, you know, they're, they're just trying to write it as quickly as possible. And then, and you know, one of the things, if you're a bellman, if you're bringing room service to somebody, whether they're a ball player or not, one of the most important things to do is to, is to quote unquote read the guest, and and that's something you do in the first five seconds, and you determine if this person wants to be chatted up, or if this person wants you out of the room right away. Right. And and if the person wants you out of the room right away, then there's no conversation, right. and and you need to know the difference. So this is going back a ways, but I was doing the math really quick because you talked about coming out to Colorado in 2001 and being stuck on the depth chart. And so I was, I was, I was kind of thinking and trying to get to cover the Nuggets and the other people who lost interest. I'm thinking 2001, 2000. Oh, okay. So Nick Van Exel and the fact that those teams were just absolutely terrible and nobody wanted to cover them. That's what we Oh, yeah. Them. They were awful. The very first game that I went to yeah. was a game against the Bucks, and Van Exel had 25 points at the half. Um, he did not end up with 50, but I was at the game in which Van Exel, uh, well, Van Exel was right behind Dan Issel. And, uh, and so too was the cameraman for channel nine when Van, e when, uh, when Itzel, um, yelled at the fan and, um, and that caused a, a great, uh, controversy. Um, I was not behind them because, uh, normally for a nugget game, I will camp out side the visitors locker room do the visitors then go over to the nuggets so i wasn't there but i was at that game so so i was at game six of the world series and i didn't see with my own two eyes buckner uh booting that ground ball and i was at the dan issel game i was in the building but i didn't see dan issel um uh get upset with the fan uh, so i'm not always in the right place at the right time <laughs> Well, I did want to wrap up on asking you about what you saw, or I guess we're in the general vicinity of, uh, during the 2007 Rockies run, some of the, the standout memories for you uh, from that year out here, whether they be the World Series or just any, any of the time, that whole season, really. Um, I was there, you know, when, when, uh, when Helton had his massive uh, walk-off home run against Saito, um, but more emblematic of that. And, and even somebody who's a, you know, Rockies historian like Tracy Ringlesby might not even remember this. I remember a game and this was just emblematic of this hot streak that the Rockies were on. Cause you need to get the calls, you need to get the bounces. And for, 
for balls that are hit right near the foul line. You need for them to kick up chalk or just, just, you know, um, land just on the correct side of the foul line. And Sean Smith, do you remember Sean Smith? No, I'm blanking Seth on Smith. It. Seth Smith. I'm sorry. Oh, Seth okay, Smith. Okay. There we go. Yeah, okay. Seth, Seth Smith. Yes. And he had, he had this game winning bloop double that was part of this, part of this streak. And it landed just, just on the fair side of the, of the left field line. And, you know, when you're on streaks like that, you need stuff like that to happen. And the Rockies got it in spades. I mean, they played good ball, of course, but all kind of breaks and stuff went their way again and again. And, you know, that's how you win 13 or 14 games. Yeah, luck is a, a residue of design. So, I mean, again, if you're not in that, that position to, to have such a, a good A-B and, and to have the score being close, then, you know, that whether or not that ball dunks in isn't going to really make much of a difference. So... That, that, that was a special club, for sure. Oh, yes, it was. And uh, too bad that they won the NLCS in four games because that layoff um, that layoff could have uh, really adversely affected them vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. What do you remember about, um, as we've been going through, <clears throat> looking at some of the best like individual seasons in Rockies history, particularly Matt Holiday that year, one of the things I always remember – and AJ Hayfley, our, our avalanche guy, said this on the show the other day was he it seemed like you could predict Matt Holiday home runs. I always felt like like you could feel when they were gonna happen. If a guy fell behind three one in a semi-clutch situation, Matt Holiday was at the plate, and you're like, he's gonna challenge him with a fastball here. I think Maddie's due. Like it just felt like you could feel it. What do you remember about that season that should have been MVP season for Matt Holiday? <laughs> A lot of what you're talking about, but the the defining moment for Holiday, and this is this is you know kind of a no brainer. Just his um, uh, not quite um, um, classic uh, slide. At uh, I mean, uh, Tom Amansky would not have approved of the way that uh, <laughs> teach it like that that, that Holiday uh, slid at the plate. Um, so I remember that mostly. Um, I remember that. Uh, uh, do either of you guys remember who hit the sack fly? Jamie Carroll. Very Jamie good. Carroll. Very good. And um, uh, and so I remember that slide. What I also remember is that, you know, for any Padre fan or really any neutral fan or even a Rocky fan, you would have to think this is money for the Padres. They have a two-run lead and Trevor Hoffman on the mound. Yeah. And the Rockies somehow carved out three runs against this elite-level closer and I remember, um, it's not that I have a, a penchant for losers, but I was part, I was, I was part of this tiny scrum around Bill Buckner and I was the first one to get to Trevor Hoffman. And I actually talked to him one-on-one -on -one after the game. Oh, wow. I was, a. he got to his locker. I was there. Trevor Hoffman has always been very gracious, uh, after a game, whether he does well or whether he does poorly, not unlike Dennis Eckersley, when Dennis Eckersley was with the A's and, and racking up save after save, every once in a while he would blow a save and he'd be very gracious um, talking to the, to the media afterwards. But so too is Trevor Hoffman, and I talked to him, and and again he was he was as gracious as one could be under those circumstances. You know the the Padres have had so many more bad years than good. And here they were, you know, ticketed for, you know, moving on to the, you know, 
um, NLCS because there wasn't an NLDS in 20, 2007. Still, was still was. Yeah, there, there was NLDS because Rock. Oh, okay. The, Just the no wild cards. So, yeah. Okay, but the, but the point is he was oh, – yeah. Um, but Trevor Hoffman was just a, a class act and I got what I needed from him, thanked him and moved on. And then, then a whole, uh, scrum moved in, but I was always impressed by how gracious he was in, in a very ungracious time for the Padres. So if you're a hall of fame closer, it's not so bad if you blow a save here or there, you'll, you'll still talk to the media. That's the, that's the trend there between Hoffman, Eckersley, and I imagine a guy like Mariano Rivera as well. Yeah, although um, in the case of, um, I don't know how much he talked as his English was not the best. Um, but as long as you, but as long as you bring that up, I have to throw this in. Speaking of graciousness, um, I have never seen a team in professional sports handle success with grace and class that the way the Yankees of the latter nineties did. Because uh, the Yankees, ninety six through two thousand, no, ninety six through two thousand one, they they won their division. They they many times in dominant fashion. They were a great team, and and they had virtually no bad apples on that team. Everybody again handled success with class, and I think that can be easily traced to the skipper Joe Torre. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and the guys that they did have that were wild cards, they, they kept them in line. Like let's, you know, David Wells was no saint, but he, he knew how to, how to keep it together during the season for the most part. And uh, they, they kept those things behind, behind closed doors a, a little bit. I mean, you, I'm sure you all remember he actually pitched a game with Babe Ruth's cap on his head. Like that's <laughs> how much of a fanatic he was for the Babe. But before we let you go, Bruce, um, I, I do want you to talk a little bit about a new endeavor that you have. Uh, you've got your own podca- podcast called Cancer Interviews, uh, where you're you're one of the co-hosts with, uh, with Jim Foster, and, uh, and and talk a little bit about that and, and, and plug away because I think it's a it's a great concept, great idea, and uh, and something that's you know so hits so close to home for for you as a cancer survivor yourself. Oh well, thanks very much for for giving me uh, this opportunity. Um, Jim Foster, who is the founder of Cancer Interviews, and myself are cancer survivors, although I can tell you in terms of pain, suffering, and adversity, my cancer journey was weak sauce compared to his. He twice survived non-Hodgkin lymphoma. He twice came within an inch of his life, and he survived both times. And um, basically, the reason for being with Cancer Interviews is that when somebody is diagnosed with cancer, sure, they're going to go to healthcare professionals. They're going to go to the internet to try to determine the best possible treatment option. Each cancer is different. There are some cancers in which it's pretty straightforward. There aren't options. There's just one thing you can do. But with other cancers like prostate cancer, uh, of which I'm a survivor, there are lots of options, almost too many. But, uh, but in addition to all that, there's this whole emotional piece. Um, as, as you um, contemplate the enormity of, of, of what this, this cancer can do, how, how it could prematurely end your life, or if it doesn't end your life, how it can um, uh, severely alter the course of your life. And so basically what Cancer Interviews tries to do is fill this void by having lengthy interviews with survivors of cancer 
telling their whole story, A to Z, the whole play-by-play -play of, of their life before they were diagnosed, um, uh, what they went through with treatment, how difficult it was, and then what life is like after, uh, after they've survived. And um, with the people we've talked to, yes, some people are more eloquent than others, but everybody uh, who we've interviewed has a compelling story to tell. Even my story is not as dramatic as some of the others, but my story underscores the importance of early detection. Early detection is important for any type of cancer. It's really important for prostate cancer. But um, basically, we're putting that out there. So um, our, I guess our target audience falls into three categories. It's people who have been diagnosed with cancer, people who think they might be diagnosed with cancer. I had like a four-month interim uh, in which I was told I might have it. And, um, and then when I did, and then finally, uh, friends and loved ones of the first two categories, those are the people we're trying to reach. And, and if you can, since we do have a lot of, you know, male listeners uh, to our podcast, female as well, but for those male listeners, what's one piece of advice you could give them about, uh, you know, getting uh, tested, uh, for prostate cancer and, and what, what's the right age for uh, a gentleman to do such a thing? Well, um, that's interesting you bring that up because I think there's a conventional wisdom that people should start, guys should start getting tested around age 50. But I was diagnosed at age 47. Um, I was treated by doctors in New York who were recommended to me by a New York radio friend who was also diagnosed at 47. He's gone on to start his own little foundation called fansforthecure.org, which does a, a bunch of tremendous things. But uh, one of the guys in his support group was diagnosed at age 38, which is almost unheard of. Most of the men who are diagnosed are diagnosed in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. But um, um, I would say, um, you know, ask to have... Um, ask to have a, um, a, a prostate cancer screening as, as part of your blood work and ask for it because uh, back in the 90s, when I, was, uh, when I was diagnosed, it was automatic that if you went in for a physical, part of your blood work uh, was determining your PSA, which is a, a number that determines uh, the, the possibility of uh, whether you could be diagnosed with, with cancer. Anymore, in, in more recent times, um, it's not automatic. And there, there are instances in which guys have to put their foot down and insist that they get uh, tested. And then sometimes, even then, doctors refuse to do it, believe it or not. So, um, so my message to anybody, even, even when you're in, in your 40s, get tested because uh, you don't want to be one of those guys who's diagnosed in, in the 40s. But if you are diagnosed and it's detected early, your chances of recovery are excellent. Me, I'm cancer-free 20 years as of next February. Nice job, Bruce. That's right. great. So where, uh, is, is there a website or is it just the podcast to download? It's a, it's, uh, it's a website, uh, cancerinterviews.com. And if you go to our homepage, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a bunch of icons for different um, social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing. But there's also one for YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. And if you go to the YouTube channel, you will see all of the interviews that we have posted. There are some we have posted on YouTube that we've not got onto the homepage yet. Um, 
the interviews require a certain amount of post-production and there's two of us, Jim and myself, and Jim's the only one who knows how to do it right now. So, uh, and, and he is also working as a realtor. So he's trying to, he's got these two balls in the air he's juggling. And so he hasn't been able to do the necessary post-production on all the interviews that are on YouTube. But if you go to cancerinterviews.com, click on the YouTube icon and you'll see all the interviews we have. A lot, of, a lot of great guests from the Denver area too. So uh, I, we, we will all be definitely checking that out. Yes, please do. And, and again, thanks for giving me the chance to bring it up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing all of your stories. Well, not all of your stories. <laughs> thank you for sharing a handful of your stories. It's embarrassing that we haven't done this before now. Honestly, we, we will have to do it again before too long. Absolutely. Most definitely. Uh, guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been an absolute blast. You want to make sure to, again, check out all of that stuff at cancerinterviews.com that Bruce was talking about there. You know all the stuff for us. Follow on the social media at Drew Creaseman, at Patrick B. Lyons, at DNVR underscore Rockies. You got to subscribe to the DNVR.com so you don't miss out on any of that written content. Plus, you get discounts on hats, shirts, masks. You get a bigger beer when you come down to the DNVR bar. Also, come on down to the bar. We've got a bar now on Colfax, though. I think the uh, capacities are about to uh, be much more limited. So double check all of that. And we've been actually, we're following all the rules. Everything's very safe out there. We've got all the tables taped off that need to be. There's hand sanitizer everywhere. Uh, So if there's not room, we won't let you in. But if if it looks safe in there, come on by. And again, Uh, Thanks to Bruce for hanging out with us. Thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast and continuing to be absolutely awesome out there. We will continue to be absolutely Patrick, Drew, and Bruce in here. And until next time, we will see you at the ballpark.